Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. It's on page 759 in your church Bibles. It's also, again, printed in your service sheets for your convenience. Uh, These these first few chapters, last week we we looked at uh, the baptism of Jesus. And and what we're seeing in these these early days of, of Jesus' earthly ministry is him really laying out what his work is. Uh, what is it that he's come to do? Uh, and so this morning we're, we're looking at uh, his temptations, his, his going out to, to confront the, the evil, the powers of this world. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 4. I'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 11 this morning. And this is, this is God's word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Everyone likes a good drama, don't they? Uh, Whether you you like the the highbrow period dramas that that we used to get uh, on the BBC, or or whether you like the the lowbrow reality TV, we all like drama on some level. Uh, the reason being is that, that on some level we can, we can always relate to the struggles of the characters and their, their stories uh, often come to some happy resolution which, which gives us hope for ourselves. Well, this morning we have a, a, a micro-drama from the early ministry of Jesus. Last week we, we met the adult Jesus as he, he comes to be baptized. In part, his, his baptism was showing both his, his submission to God the Father, and as well as his plan of salvation. It pointed from, from the very beginning of his ministry to his purpose to, to die and to rise again for our sins. What we find today are, are those promises and that, that work being, uh, being put to the test as Jesus experiences the, the intense temptation of the devil. And all of us on some level are able to, to relate to the temptations that Jesus experienced. We ourselves experience them every day. And the, the wonderful thing about this, this passage, and what really helps us understand it, is that be, because of how Jesus stood up under these temptations, to temptations that we often succumb to ourselves, we have a, a, a true and unveiled hope in Christ. There's three things for us to see this morning uh, from our passage. First of all, we see a troubling start. Secondly, uh, the an anatomy of temptation. And then third, the, the promise of a promising conclusion. So first of all, we see a troubling start, don't we? If you're, you're looking carefully at the very first verse of our passage, 
you may have found it a bit disturbing. It says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's a, it's a good synopsis of, of what happens, isn't it? But the question is, why? Remember our context. Again, this was uh, right after Jesus was baptized. And the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And we heard the voice of God declaring that this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Matthew picks up the action after that and, and says uh, that immediately after this, this baptism, he says, well, then what? This, well, then the Spirit led him, Jesus, into the wilderness so that he could be tempted by the devil. And then he fasted for 40 days and nights. He was weakened and he was hungry. Now, if you've not been around the church much in, in your life, then you may still have heard about this episode. Uh, it's often uh, depicted in, in paintings and things. Uh, if you've been around the church for a while, then you, you probably are familiar with this passage. But we tend to forget the when and the why of Jesus' temptation. This happened immediately after this, this initial moment of triumph. This, this baptism, probably, probably not when you would expect it to happen. We would expect uh, the Messiah, after being publicly proclaimed as the Son of God, to then go and, and stake his claim to the throne of Israel. Instead, he's going off into the wilderness. And he's not only going off at, on his own volition, but, but the Spirit is leading him out into this, this desert place. Now, perhaps your expectations are that the, the Christian life should be, should be uh, one of, of triumphant moments, like Jesus' baptism. That Christianity is, is meant to, to inspire us to live better, to become better people, and it should make our lives easier. What we see in this, this first verse is the, the sobering reality of the Christian life. It's a life that's lived within the, the reality of an evil world. And all of us at some point in our lives will, will face suffering and temptation. And in Christ we have the comfort of knowing that, that the Holy Spirit's actually leading and working in us, even in those moments. And that might feel like a small comfort on, on the surface. But knowing that, that God's working even through our suffering is actually a powerful thing, isn't it? I want to suggest to us, though, that, that there's an even greater comfort and hope in this opening verse. It may seem counterintuitive, Jesus going off into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil immediately after his baptism. But let me ask you, isn't, isn't that exactly what we should expect a good king to do? Jesus has been declared the, the beloved son of God, which makes him the, the king of the entire earth. Shouldn't we expect him to confront the main forces of evil in our world then? That's exactly what we should expect, isn't it? Of a good king. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing this morning. He goes out to face the devil. Now very briefly, who is the devil or, or Satan? The, the Bible and Jesus himself talk about Satan as a real person. And so we should assume that, that he is a real person. And he's a real uh, and true spiritual being. Uh, he is the, the enemy of God. He hates God. He hates God's creatures. And he hates God's creation. And in many ways, if you, if you want to understand evil in our world, then, then you can look at Satan and you can see the embodiment and source of much, of much evil. 
He's a tempter and he's a deceiver. As we'll see in a, in a moment, he, he takes evil and he portrays it as good. He takes uh, clear lines of, of right and wrong and he seeks to, to blur them. He takes the, the settled truths of creation and the truth of God's word and, and he, he reinterprets and reimagines those. And, it, and the truth is that, that our hearts are drawn to these reinterpretations and reimaginings. See, Satan understands the human heart and he understands exactly how to deceive it into embracing evil. Now, another question you may be asking is then, when, when you do bad things, sinful things, was it the devil who made you do it? And the answer to that is, is really no. It was your own heart that made you do that. But the devil may have put the idea into your head. He likes to tempt him to attack the lonely and the isolated, as we see him do here with Jesus. He likes to confront the, the weak. And so we see him, when does he attack Jesus? He, he does it after 40 days of fasting, when he's weak and he's hungry. And this, is, this is why we believe as a, as a church that it's so important for us to be in community together. Why it's so important to us that, that we, we can care for one another that we can, we can speak truth to the falsehoods of our world, that we can challenge one another, and that we can, we can pray for one another, that we might stand up under temptation and recognize temptation when it appears. So what happens when the great enabler of evil in our world meets the perfect and righteous Son of God? Well, that's what we find out in our, our second point this morning as we, we look at in detail at how Satan seeks to attack Jesus. Our second point is an anatomy of temptation. Here we have Jesus out in the wilderness. He's been there. Uh, he's been led out to be tempted. He's been there for, for 40 days and nights uh, fasting when Satan turns up. So Jesus was hungry. Uh, he was vulnerable. And that's when the devil appears to attack him. And he, he attacks the most obvious thing in his first temptation. He attacks Jesus' weakness, doesn't he? Look at verse 3. And the tempter came... And said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan's attack is, is the most obvious thing we would expect, wouldn't we? He attacks Jesus' weak point. But notice how he does it. He does it in the context of his identity. He's questioning who Jesus is. He says, if you're, if you're the son of God, then do this thing. He's doing something similar to what he did with, with Adam and, and Eve back in the garden. He's questioning the love of God for him. If you're God's son, then, then why are you struggling? Why are you suffering here in this, this wasteland when you have the power to instantly meet your needs? Are you sure the Father actually cares for you? Don't you think you should prove it through, through a sign by using this, this power that you have? Satan's calling Jesus to, to prove his sonship by using his sonship in a trite way. It's actually quite a malicious attack, isn't it? Given the context. Jesus has just been declared by the Father at his baptism as his beloved son. He's just spent 40 days and, and nights fasting. And so Satan is asking, is that, is that declaration from the Father 40 days ago, is that really sufficient? Was it really sufficient 
Is that, that promise really enough when you're feeling the hunger of suffering in the wilderness of this world? Is it really enough? Don't you think it's better to have some other little proof? Turn these stones into bread. And the truth is that we feel this, don't we? Are the promises of God really sufficient? Is our faith strong enough? We want a sign, don't we? We want to prove to ourselves the strength of God's love and power in our lives in real and practical ways. We end up asking ourselves, can, can we really be a child of God when our lives are filled with such big problems? Can God really love us? This is why things like, like the social justice movement are so appealing. It's good to do good things, of course, but, but we, we, can often, uh, uh, we often think if we can just fix some of the big problems of the world, if our faith can compel us to do good deeds and God blesses that work, then, then it's evidence that our faith is genuine. This is why Pentecostalism is appealing. If we, can, if we can do incredible signs and wonders, if we can have some kind of special revelation from God, then it will be proof that God does genuinely love us. And those seem like good things. They seem like good things, don't they? They can even seem reasonable. But the problem in the, is, is really what we see in the heart of this first temptation. It's we're questioning God's word. You see, we either believe the word of God in Jesus. We believe that as Jesus had to believe it. You're, you're, Jesus was told he's, he's the beloved son of God. Either we believe the promises of God, or we believe it only when we can prove it. But then the question becomes, how much proof do you need? And why isn't the word of God sufficient? How much evidence do we need of God's character? Jesus' response is simple, and it's telling, isn't it? And it's challenging to us. He responds to each temptation by pointing the devil to Scripture, to the word of God given to his people in, in the Old Testament. His first response is from, from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't in this, this verse uh, minimize our need for food, does he? Our need for bread. In fact, he calls us to pray for it as we did earlier in the Lord's Prayer. He teaches his disciples to pray for the Lord's provision. He provides bread when it's running short and it's needed, as we'll, we'll see in the weeks ahead. Jesus understands the importance of physical nourishment. But he also understands who it is that provides physical as well as spiritual nourishment. It's the God who made us. And Jesus highlights that here, doesn't he? That he's not simply a physical being. That we need something more than just bread. See, Jesus highlights here that, that if our soul focuses on our physical nourishment then we lose out on the one who created us and provides for us. St. Jerome once said that if, if anyone is not feeding on the word of God, then that person is not living. That's actually an excellent summary of what Jesus is saying here. That you can have all the bread in the world and still not be living if you're denying the God who gave it to you. 
You see, Satan will often try to get us to, to think that what we really need are the things of this world, won't he? We just had Christmas, which is the, the annual time each year when, when kids all over the world think that, that when they get up in the morning, all their longings are going to be met with gifts. And then they find themselves bored within an hour or two and, and longing for something else. And Jesus, even in, in his intense hunger, recognizes that, that even something as, as basic as bread isn't enough. That he needs God, the Father. Now the second temptation actually strikes at Jesus' strength. We go from weakness to strength. Satan first attacks his weakness, his hunger. Then he turns around and he, he attacks he attacks the strength. He goes for, for his strong point. He says, if you want to quote scripture to me, then, then I, can, I can play that game too. I'll quote some scripture to you. So he takes him up to the, the highest point of the temple, this, this uh, incredible building in Jerusalem. And he tells Jesus, Jesus if he's the, the son of God, then he can throw himself down. Because God will save him. And he quotes uh, Psalm 91 as a proof text to prove to Jesus what, he, the, what he's saying. And the temptation is for Jesus to, to prove indeed the faith that he's just proclaimed in word. To put his faith into action. To take God at his word and, and act on that. And it's a remarkable example of how God's word can be, can be manipulated. Which is why it's really important that we, we know it well, as Jesus does here. Satan's manipulating the difference between trusting God versus testing God. He rips Psalm 91, which, which we read a bit of uh, earlier, from its, from its context, in order to, to try to get Jesus to prove that he believes the promises of God and to believe that they're true. Again, Jesus' response is instructive. We see how, how he handles Scripture, and we, we learn from it how Scripture is, is appropriately handled. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And it's really important that we understand what Jesus is doing here. Notice what, what Jesus doesn't say to Satan. He doesn't say, well, the Bible is wrong there. And he doesn't say maybe that that, that text isn't as important as, as this one that I'm, I'm about to quote to you. And he doesn't say, well, the Bible says that, but, but the really important thing is, is this tradition that we have that's been passed down and so forth. Rather, Jesus' response is, is to, to Jesus' response to a scripture taken out of context is a scripture that provides context. Psalm 91 is a, a brilliant psalm. It's expressing the love of God for his people through his protection. And it's a call to trust God in the midst of adversity. When it looks like the, the odds are stacked against his people, God promises there to, to care for them, to watch out for them, to, to look after them. What it is not, and what Jesus underlines here, is that Psalm 91 is not about us going out and being idiots and expecting God to save us from our every dangerous whim. Uh, Frederick Bruner says that Jesus believes Psalm 91 no less than he believes Deuteronomy 6. But he believes Psalm 91 rightly used as a text of God's protecting love. 
does not teach believers to throw themselves around expecting God's miraculous rescuing. Nor does it teach that God is the least servant of our leaps. It's a challenging response. And it should challenge us on, on several levels. First of all, it should, it should challenge how we understand Scripture. If some people would look at, at, at this exchange between uh, the devil and Jesus and, and think that the Scriptures must be contradictory. But when we have an intimate knowledge of, of it, we can, we can understand the richness of the, the subtleties and the, the context into which Scripture speaks. It's dangerous, isn't it, to, to take an overly literal view of a passage out of context. And that's what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do. Satan takes a crass, literalistic view of Psalm 91. And Jesus corrects it with a, a careful, God-centered understanding of Scripture. Which actually leads to the second challenge for us from this temptation. How we understand our own faith in relation to God. Is God there to serve us? Or are we there to serve and glorify him? That's what was at the, the heart of, of this temptation from Satan. He again says to, to Jesus, if you're the son of God, then, then prove it. Throw yourself off this building and see if God does what he promised to do. And that's not how faith is meant to work. God's promises are not a license. He doesn't exist to, to bail us out of our, of our stupidity. Rather, he calls us to trust in him. And more and more to, to center our lives around him. To allow him to lead us. And to trust him to, to care for us. And to protect us from whatever dangers come our way. Again, uh, Bruner summarizes it well when he says the, the, devil was a, the, the, the devil uses a scripture that enlists a person's daring faith in God's promises. Jesus uses a scripture that teaches a person's reverence before God's holiness. That's a critical distinction. The devil says that, that God is there for you, while Jesus says that we are there to glorify and serve God. And the question for us, the challenge for us is, is that enough? When we look upon this God, when we look at his son, is that, is that enough to trust and to follow? Now the third temptation is, is centered on Jesus' purpose, his, his mission. In some ways we could describe it as, as making our work our God. Jesus' work as the Messiah was to, to win the world, to receive the whole world as his, as his inheritance for eternity. So now Satan takes him up on a mountain and, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the, uh, kingdoms of the world, all their, their glory, their splendor, their beauty, and he makes him an offer. He says, I'll give you all of this if you will simply bow the knee to me and worship me. Everything Jesus had been promised without, without all the suffering, without having to die for it. All he had to do was, was just, just offer a bit of worship to this ruler of our world. It's a compelling offer, isn't it? I think most of us would, would take it, wouldn't we? How much would it cost to get you to, to bow the knee to the things of this world? 
For some, it's remarkably cheap. We'll see that in, we'll see that in Judas in, in, well, a few months' time. It only costs 30 pieces of silver to get him to betray Jesus. Now, this is the most subtle and, and probably the most powerful of temptations. It's a universal. It's one that all of us can relate to. The desire for meaning and for comfort. The de- desire to be valued and to matter. It's not simply about riches and power, but it's about, it's about meaning and it's about purpose. Satan offers the, the shortcut to purpose, but he can't actually offer the meaning because he's only a cheap substitute for the one we were created for. And Jesus banishes him with a simple, by simply pointing to the one that we were always meant to worship. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. It's a simple rebuke, but it ought to pull us back to who we really and truly are. And it ought to point us to who Jesus really and truly is. That we were made by God, and we were made for him alone. And we can spend our whole lives trying to to fill our need of him through doing things, through seeking things of this world. And the truth is we, we may find some purpose in that. We may find some reason to live. But what we'll never find is our true meaning until we find ourselves in the God who made us and redeems us through his Son. And that's the whole point of what Christ went through in these verses to point us to the work that he came to accomplish, which was to, to bring us back to the God that we have wandered from. The promise that he gives us is that, that there's something more and better than what the world and Satan has to offer us. And that's what we see in our third point this morning, the promise of a promising conclusion. I want to suggest that we've, we've actually seen two things this morning. First, we've seen the, the subtle power of evil at work in our world. It's, it's remarkable how simple these temptations were, isn't it? That's the nature of evil in our world, which is why we ought to be, we ought to be skeptical of, of so many things we come across each and every day. Because that's how Satan works in our world. It explains so many things about why, why things have happened both in the past and in the present. Like, how did, how did slavery ever happen? Well, quote-unquote good people made little compromises that over time had a a devastating and terrible impact on people created in the image of God. That's a very simple explanation. I know it's it's an oversimplification, but but that's what we see in our passage. It's that, that people started believing lies, and those lies grew over time until great evil happened. When we come to think about it that way, we should, as Christians, become skeptical both of of, uh, our own motives as well as the latest things society tells us that are going to make us more enlightened and more righteous. The ways of thinking and understanding our world that that promise to progress us in righteousness as a society. The cries for for justice that we hear sound sound really good and really promising, don't they? The promises of, of acceptance sounds really good. Shouldn't we all have the right to live as we choose. And shouldn't we not just respect that, but shouldn't we celebrate it when people, when people decide to, to live differently? It sounds good, doesn't it? More importantly, to, to accept it promises us 
that we won't be out of accord with our society. We won't, we won't have to feel the pressure and the pain of nonconformity. There's subtle temptations that appear to promise life, and they seem so cheap and so easy. It's the path of least resistance. But in the context of this passage, we can see that, that behind them there's only death. Because the lies of Satan are always going to focus us on us. And the lies of Satan are, are really only there to, to draw us further and further away from the God who made us. And to push us towards his hell. But Jesus showed us our true purpose and our true meaning. To worship a holy and righteous God alone. The second thing we've seen is a Savior who went out and who met the full power of evil and overcame it. And one day he will make all the mess of evil right. The message of Jesus' temptation is that there's no shortcuts to righteousness. That much of the Christian life is, is wandering in the wilderness of this world. Wandering through the brokenness. Wandering through the, the things that are, that are offered. The, this one simple solution after another only to find them leaving us empty and wanting more. What Jesus promises us is a Savior who can meet evil and overcome it. But not only that, he can sympathize with us in our temptation because he experienced them for himself. And he can offer us forgiveness because he could overcome sin and temptation in himself. And he has an abundance of grace to pay for your sins. Because he paid for them on the cross. And the promise and the hope that we see here is that, that all the things the world promises us, God ultimately provides for us when we trust in him and his promises. That's what we see happen for Jesus, isn't it, in verse 11. He receives the very things that were promised. His needs are met by God. And God lovingly ministers to all of his needs. The, the angels that Satan said would come, God God. God sends in the right context, in the right moment, the bread that Jesus longed for, he received. And the world that would be his inheritance, he will gain. And that's the difference, isn't it? Satan's called the deceiver because he only wants to make you think that he cares. He only wants you to think that what, what he offers you will, will meet your longings. But underneath the lies are, are only hatred and spite for God's creatures. But what Jesus offers us is, is access to a God who loves you. And he wants to minister to your needs. Out of his great love for you. Love that he sent down to earth in his son, Jesus. To meet the evil that we suffer under each day. To overcome it for our sakes. Let us pray.